It's clear to see that we live a long way from nature. There are children growing up in the city that have never taken a walk in the woods. For most of us, the extent of wildlife we see is a rat or a pigeon. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll see a deer or a frog. It is estimated that four out of five Americans can't see the Milky Way anymore. We're far away from nature. And I'm not just talking about ecological issues, extinctions of huge percentages of animals and plants that occurred within the last century, and climate change, although each of these, of course, are related to our getting farther away from nature. I'm talking about the effect on the personal level, too. How does it affect our well-being, our happiness, and our spirituality when we no longer sit in nature? How does it affect our children's development? I'm sure many of you are listening to this podcast episode driving, commuting, or cleaning at home. How about this? If you can, listen to this podcast while taking a walk out in nature. Look at the trees and find a way to connect with them and to connect with yourself. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to philosophy, ethics, culture, and ourselves. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Today we'll be talking a lot about ourselves in nature. Our guest today has a lot of amazing personal stories, and some of them he's going to share on the podcast. One in particular he is sharing with the patrons of this podcast. And you can find this story as an essay that he wrote on the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. I want to thank all of you for your support of this podcast. If you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join at patreon.com sparkdialogue or on the website at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks everyone for your support. Hello, I'm Peter Kahn and I'm a professor in the uh, Department of Psychology at the University of Washington and also in the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. And I direct the Human Interaction with Nature and Technological Systems Laboratory. Of course, our separation from nature was not always like this. Our ancestors knew how to take down an elephant as a team. They knew what plants were poisonous and which were edible and which could cure sicknesses. When I look back on our evolutionary history, going, I don't know, if we start 100,000 years ago, go back to Paleolithic times, and there's we're a sustainable uh, culture. Uh, people like Elizabeth Marshall Thomas have written of her first contact with the Bushmen and in the 1950s in Africa and details such uh, depth of connection that these people have that are representative of an old way, our Paleolithic lives. But this did not last forever. When did we start becoming alienated from nature? The conditions for it emerged in the Neolithic period, say 5,000 years ago, 5,000, 10,000 years ago, and, um, and with the rise of cities. And starting, you know, whenever, the, whenever you start thinking about the Neolithic period of moving out of Africa and the rise of agriculture, whether it's 5,000, 10,000 years ago, at that point, there's this radical change in our social structures, because at that point, we gain control of food <laughs> because we're growing our food. We can store our food. Once we store our food, we can, we don't have to be nomadic anymore. And now we can have increased population. This is about control. Controlling our food allowed us to settle down. But it also allowed something surprising. The division of classes, the division of wealth. Some humans controlled the fields. Some did not. Some had more fertile land. Others had smaller chunks of land that bore hardly any yield, or none at all. 
now you start having, instead of a flat society, you start having a hierarchy because you have more and more people. So Paleolithic, Neolithic, rise of population, food stores, hierarchical systems that start emerging. And with hierarchical systems start also emerging power structures and class because you have in, now you have the store of food and now you have the uh, uh, increase in wealth. And uh, somewhere along the line, the domination orientation, not in every society, but largely in many societies, uh, seem to take hold. But we could have gone another way, and uh, we could still go another way. Uh, it's not really deep in our genetic history to be apart from nature in the way we are. It's more recent. It's, it doesn't go back 50,000, 100,000, 200 years. Deep in our evolutionary genetics that we're still tethered to is this deep need for nature and a connection for nature. And, and we are part of nature, and that's the part that we've lost. And that's the part that I think we can regain. Fast forward to today. We can't tell poison ivy from raspberries. Most of us don't hunt or even garden. We get our food from the supermarket. Think of people growing up, kids growing up in megacities where there are 10 million, 20 million, even 30 million people, and how difficult that is then in these conditions, in those conditions, for children to connect deeply with nature. But the strange thing is, most of us don't even realize we're missing something. Peter has a word for this. Environmental generational amnesia. It's the reason why kids today may call a clump of trees in the back of their property a forest when their great-grandparents would wander through old-growth forest, often seeing a bear, an eagle, or a fox. My, my, my first encounter with it was in an early study in, in Houston, Texas, uh, with an inner-city, low-economic community, an all-black community. And we were interviewing kids about their environmental views and their values and we were going against the stereotype that held at the time, sometimes even held today, that black people are not interested in environmental issues, that they have more pressing issues to uh, be taken care of. And uh, in some ways, that, you know, a view of Maslow's hierarchy or something, you have to have a, your basic needs taken care of before you can be concerned about the environment. So we were in, the, in that school interviewing kids. And one of the questions we asked in a long interview was, are you aware of pollution, air pollution and water pollution. And we were in, this is Houston. Houston at the time was the most polluted city in the United States. And the kids could talk about pollution. They could describe it. They could refer to other places in the world, you know, like they, that had pollution. But when they are being, when they're thinking about whether Houston's polluted, they're, they, the majority of them could talk about it, but didn't think that Houston had pollution. And for me, that just like, how could you not understand that it's pollution? Because, you, you know, it's so obvious you can, no visit, very little visibility and the oil smells were very strong. So that's the beginning of this idea of, that, that I was seeing about environmental generational amnesia and that the kids were growing up in an environment that's already polluted, degraded. But as they are coming of age, they're constructing, they're constructing ideas of what normal is. And that normal is what they are all around, what's, what's around them. So they are taking the polluted environment as the normal environment. And 
That's part of the enormous psychological problem I think all of us face. It's not just them. All of us come of age in a world that's already has shifted, you know, the baseline has shifted downward in terms of the richness and diversity and beauty, depth of nature. But we grow up and we think that's the nor- normal. <laughs> But it's not normal. At least it's not normal for humans for the last million years. It's not that people don't care about nature. It's that they don't know what they're missing. We humans are adaptable. We're so adaptable we can change to pretty much any situation. But that's also a problem. If we grew up with something, we assume that's normal. We assume that that's the way it's supposed to have been. It's hard to get a grip on exactly how much has changed. I mean, environmental problems are really hard to... Fix. I mean, and, and on the largest level, when we talk about climate change, it's like okay, we agree. It most people agree that it's a life-threatening global problem. Whether we can deal with it or solve it or not, that remains to be seen. But at least we can go at it. But the problem with environmental generational amnesia is there's all this loss that's happening. That's a, that that is causing. So many problems, and it's that loss then that you want to help people say, "Look what we've lost," and people are saying, "I don't think we've lost that much," and the, and they're not experiencing the loss because as children, that's largely what they came of age with. Now, of course, as you get older, you can start benchmarking back to your childhood, and then you can start feeling a little bit of the loss.、Uh, but it's hard won knowledge. <laughs> For example, go out tonight. And count how many stars you see: one, four, seven hundred. Have you ever seen the Milky Way? A third of the people on this planet have never even seen it. And if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it regularly, you have no idea what you're missing. That is one of the profound, profound parts of just a lay person's life: is you lay, night sky, you lay on the ground, and you know, million stars. Open up, and there's just awe. There's grandeur. It's 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 the whole the whole psyche just、uh, comes alive. And now there are kids who have have never seen the Milky Way. Some kids have never seen a star. Some people think that shooting stars are like unicorns. You know, they understand it as a social construct, but they don't think that there anything exists. And it's like, and now you try to explain that you've you're losing something, and they don't. They think what you know. I haven't lost anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like if you didn't grow up with music, and you try to explain to someone what a life is without music, and they would say, "Well, I don't feel like I'm missing anything," and, and this—that's a hard problem to solve. And maybe the solution then that I would go to to the, with the problem, given the problem of environmental generation amnesia, if you think of the problem is lack of interaction with the actual depth of the beauty of nature, the richness and wildness of nature, then the solution is in some ways getting people. To interact, to have that interaction with rich and diverse nature, and slightly more wild forms of nature, to push back on what you know many of us are seeing as the shifting baseline of what constitutes healthy nature. When we go out in nature, we feel good. We have elevated moods. We sleep better. Most people can tell you this, but what is actually going on in your body? I, I was part of a、uh, review study led by Howie Frumkin, who is、um, dean of public health here at the University of Washington, and we reviewed hundreds of the leading studies
on what can be con- think of as this area of nature and and health. And as we review, just you know, it's not just a, it's, it's not just a single study. We need to take a lot of the studies together and look at it in a in a broad framing. The overarching findings that the literature, you know, the empirical literature sh- shows is. Uh, interaction with nature uh, reduces stress, it reduces anxiety, reduces aggression, reduces ADHD symptoms, reduces obesity, reduces diabetes, mortality, uh, reduces depression. <laughs> I mean, think of something like depression. One in 10 people in the United States are taking antidepressants. It's an, I mean, it's living in this world is difficult. And, and there's a med, and there are medical solutions then to this. And I'm not wanting to, and just taking depression as an example, it's very complicated. I'm not negating the place of medication, but what I'm highlighting is that there is the, that when you can see studies after study, being able to show the mental health benefits of interacting with nature, then you're thinking we're, we're missing an enormous opportunity of in the way that health, that the nature can benefit our human health. So those are all the ways nature uh, reduces certain things like stress, anxiety, and aggression, and it improves things like sleep and mental health uh, in the general sense, eyesight, uh, immune function. I mean, you just stick your stick your <laughs> stick your hands in soil, and there's the immune. You know, we know that on the biological side, but you can even you know even think something like uh, eyesight and the enormous problem we're having on a global level for children having myopia and so needing glasses. And, you know, some of this is tied to all of us on devices for so long, but now kids are coming of age and it's usually, you know, 18, you know, devices about 18 inches from our eyes. It doesn't vary that much. And it's that way for three, four, five, maybe seven, 10, I mean, lots of hours a day. That's not good for the eyes. And on the flip side, what we're missing, part of the solution that nature has always offered us is the big horizon, the view, and something to look at. So we're always, when we're out in nature, right, we're just always looking. We're, you know, just where's the sun and where's the trees and where am I going? And and the eyes love the long views. So, and, and you know that, like you can go to a you go to rich tops and you just like, oh, I can breathe. And you look out onto a vast, or even in a cityscape, you love being up on a street that looks out over your town or your city. And you love that because it's the big view and it's good for us. It's the eyes. So that's just a one small example of eyesight. And it's not just a single thing. It's all of these things together and uh, has enormous benefits for us. So it benefits physically, and psychologically. Technology doesn't have to be all bad, though. Imagine this situation. You're working in an office, and unfortunately for you, you don't have a window. Maybe you're in a basement. Maybe you work in a big box store with no windows overlooking the world. This was my case for five long years. I worked in an office with no window. When I left in the evening, sometimes I would be surprised to learn that it was storming outside or disappointed when the sun had already gone down and I didn't get any sunlight for hours. Peter and his colleagues thought about this too and wondered, what if we can use technology to put a fake window in these offices? So they did a study with various cases. In the first case, people had a real window with real nature view. In another, they had no window. Then they did something interesting. They brought in giant screens and placed them in certain offices. 
both for people with a window and without. For those without a window, this meant that they could now view in real time what was happening outside. For those that had a window, they put a screen directly in front of the window. They saw the same view, but instead of it being real, it was now on a screen. What do you think would have happened? Well, those who did have a window before loved it. People loved it. <laughs> and because at that point, they're comparing it to no nature rather than to actual nature or an actual window. And they were saying it, 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 it deepened their connection to the outside. It gave them real-time information. So if, if the sun happened to be shining, here we are, you know, we're in Seattle, Washington. So it rains a lot, but when the sun shines, you get outside. But if, you don't, if you're an inside office, you don't know. So that's the technology allowing for that. It also... It also gave people a uh, connection to other people. So there's the social community and the natural community. What about if you had a normal window? To figure this out, Peter and his colleagues again divided people up into various offices and then stressed them out. Along with uh, various measures, we were assessing heart rate and we would stress people. And then we would look at how fast they would recover from the stress and the Finding, if you look at the pairwise comparisons, the finding between the actual view and no, and the windowless office was that there was greater recovery from stress in the actual nature view. So, okay, that, that was re, uh, confirming what other studies have shown. What about comparing to the screen view versus no view? Did having a screen window help in terms of stress reduction? It did not differentiate at all. It was the same as a windowless office. And that surprised us because if anything, we were thinking it would be somewhere in between in terms of stress reduction. Having a bit of technological nature is better than nothing, but it's just not as good as the real thing. In most cases, a technologically mediated form of nature, whether it's digital or in a, in a robotic in, in form of a robotic pets or something or augmented or simulated or virtual it takes many, te the technological mediations take many forms. It's usually better than nothing. <laughs> and it's usually not as good as the actual. I love uh, digital representations of nature. It's called photos too, <laughs> you know, beautiful nature photos. I love nature photos. Uh, webcams of our, your favorite area. Uh, you know, Animal Planet, uh, you know, those are all digital. And they provide access to something, and that's great. But if we think that they can substitute for the actual, we're mistaken. And that, and the, the concern I have with trying to thinking about promoting the technological is that we're so surrounded by the technological, and the amount of nature keeps diminishing. And if we keep accepting the technological version, recognizing the benefits, what we're allowing potentially allowing for is the destruction of more and more nature rather than pushing back on the technology and trying to argue for more and more nature in the cities and more wild forms of nature. There are lots of apps out there that can help us to interact with nature. Apps for hiking, for identifying trees, for geocaching. And those are great. But we also have to remember to look up from our phones once in a while. The other issue with technology that I, I struggle with a little bit, I mean, even on cool apps, you know, that are like, I let, let you identify plants. So you send kids out and say, okay, you're out in the woods now. Use your app and take photos of things and share them with your friends and discover what the names of these are. I mean, that's cool. I like that. But at the other hand, there's something so beautiful and deep about the stillness and awareness that emerges when you're just in nature without the technology mediating your experience of that. 
And if we're a technological, increasingly technological society and kids keep coming of age with more and more mediated phones in their hands and every time they go out, they're somehow connecting to the technology or through the technology, what I worry is that even as we're trying to promote the good uses of technology to connect us more deeply with nature, I, I, I worry that we are, like, you know, missing, <laughs> missing that direct interaction that slows up the mind instead of speeding up the mind. It slows us up. And potentially those are, that's where the health benefits often emerge, when we slow our minds rather than speed our minds. So the technology may connect us in some ways, but it may connect us and not lead to the same benefits. Technology can be good, but it's not the answer for everything. Peter points out that, yes, there is more to life than your phone. There's something beautiful about the human mind that is highly inventive. And, and of course, we've always been a technological species. I mean, 60,000 years ago, we're making a fire in Flint or something like that. I mean, or we have a, a spear and we're creating... I mean, th- those are r- rudimentary technologies and they allowed us to survive. And then... Some, this, this junction at the Neolithic period from Paleolithic to Neolithic where we move into agriculture and agriculture then with the rise of cities and population and, and then excess, you know, free time to and this tremendous uh, creative space that happens when people are densely congregating in cities, right? You can feel that, you know, this is all this intermixing of ideas and, and something happened to the mind, human mind that changed from something fairly stable and not innovating. I think for Paleolithic mind was not particularly innovative to to a modern mind that was it where it became adaptive to innovate. So natural selection then pushed for increased adaptation, uh, increased uh, innovation, and that's us creating and creating. On one hand, that's adaptive. It was adaptive, and then I think we're in this period. We've emerged into a new period where the very capacities of our minds that were helping us to survive are now so hyperactive in us that they're actually destructive in part. And that's our new challenge, is how how do we get control of a mind that's that's in a sense run amok? And, And that's where I think we are with many of our technologies is the technology is highly active and it's working on the medium that's most at hand. And the most at hand now is the technological form. And so we're iterating, iterating, and that's part of the corporate world and the corporate world is putting it on us, but it's putting on uh, on us because we are receptive to it because we are a technological species. <laughs> and so there's a reason why we're receptive to the corp- the large corporate technology companies, what they're offering us. And so we really, I think we're at a junction where there's an important, we have an immense challenge and that is we need to be able to shut down certain forms of the technology and the amount of technology in our lives. And that's, that's for human health. I mean, and when I talk up, when you, when you look at this sickness in our society and on a global level, and I don't mean just the pandemic that we're in the midst of right now, but I just, on a deep level, when you talk about the amount of stress that people have and the uh, you know, diabetes and 7% asthma and the cancer rates. And I talked about the depression, one in 10 people in the depression. I mean, this is, we are, we are a sick society. It's mad. It's crazy. If you 
And this is also part of the shifting baseline and, and the norm- normalizing. We're normalizing sickness in our society. We're normalizing something that should not be normalizing. So in the same way we're normalizing the destruction of nature, we're normalizing enormous sickness in people. The technology is, is, is part of that problem. And yes, it has benefits. So I'm not, but we need to slice it in the right way. So whether we get the benefits, but we push out an enormous amount that's hurting us deeply and then replace it with deep human, human interaction, the depth and beauty of the human, human and the depth of human and nature. I think one of the overarching problems of, of, of the world right now is that we see ourselves as dominating over other people and over nature. And you can see this right now in the political divide happening in this country. And when the president of the United States is saying, we need to dominate over the protesters, that domination worldview, that has a long history of in Western culture, but it doesn't go, it wasn't part of our Paleolithic life. It's recent. It's recent. It's within 2,000, 5,000 years old. It's not that deep and we can change it, but it's that domination model that needs to change to a, a relational model. How can we engage more with nature? How can we engage with this part of ourselves that we may have forgotten? For some of us, this might be really hard. If we live in deep urban centers, even with limited transportation, nature may seem like it's a million miles away. But there's always something that we can do. Find the nature within your whatever spheres you have accessible. Uh, Find it and engage it. Use your bodies, too. I mean, physical exercise is so important. One thing I love to do is I find spots that that I think are particularly beautiful. And I walk to them <laughs> and they might, you know, sometimes they're a mile away, sometimes two or three miles away, just in, in, in the city I'm in. And sometimes it's, there's a, there's a lake about a mile away or something. And I get to, and there's a place where I can get to the edge. And so getting to the edge of water and that connection to water is so deep in our evolutionary history, find a spot where there's water. What I love about finding destination spots that draw you personally is it then gets you to move there. Don't drive there. I mean, if, if you need to drive there, drive there. That's better than nothing. But see if it can be your motivation to use your body and move. Because walking is one of the oldest inter- forms of interaction with nature that we've ever had. We've walked as long as we've been a species and we've run as well. And so walk. And I don't think it's an accident that walking then is considered one of the wonderful exercises for people. So Find a nature that engages you, move your body there, you know, walking along the edge of water or sitting uh, under a tree, or if you get to water, put your hands in water and cup, or you're talking about looking at the night sky. Of course, in some cities, there is no night sky, but if there is a night sky, go outside at night. And even if there isn't a night sky, embrace the night, night if you can, of course, safely. I mean, it depends where you are, so you need to figure that out. If there's some soil, you know, where, where is their earth? <laughs> Find it and put your hands in it. Or what I love to do is I take my shoes off and my socks off and I put my feet in soil in, on the ground. And for one, of course, there's, a, a, there's benefits biologically just of having our skin with soil. We know that and it helps the immune system. And, but there's also an energy of the earth that I would suggest see if you can feel it right? Of the energy of the earth with your, with your feet.
During this time of COVID-19, many people are finding new ways to embrace nature. People are gardening more. Bikes are the new toilet paper I hear, with many models being sold out all over the world. People are hiking and spending time outdoors. And many people are finding that part of themselves that they lost in nature. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out Peter's personal story on patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thanks again for your support. Thank you all for listening today, and I'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Preamble by Airtone, Little Candle by Stefan Kartenberg, Route 17 by Dejual, and Between Worlds by Austin Sater. These songs are licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3 license. More information about these songs and links can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. <laughs>